Today's text comes from Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. How you doing? So my, my father, after he became a follower of Jesus, um, he spent some time going into, uh, into prisons um, to visit the prisoners and wherever he had an opportunity, hopefully to be a friend, to be a, a loving presence there when there was opportunity to share uh, the message of the love of God with them. And um, it, was, uh, it was an interesting thing for our family to deal with this. My dad kind of went through a very dramatic conversion to faith when I was in, in middle school. And it totally changed the way our family worked and uh, totally changed some of the rhythms of his life. And one of them was this. Um, he went into prisons. Uh, my dad was a, was a big smoker. Even when Jesus came in, he still did love to smoke uh, several packs a day. And um, he, he also did a little uh, like small time magic. Um, and uh, so he would go into the prisons and he could do this trick where he would put a cigarette out that looked like right on his palm and then he'd do this and it would be gone. And like, I had, there's a couple of pictures of him in, the, in like the prison yard with like a prisoners gathered around him doing this trick. And I'm like amazed by that. It gives me like a good feeling to see it, uh, those pictures. But I'm also like, dad, do you know that like cigarettes are currency in jail? And so maybe like they're not so great with you like disappearing, it's like disappearing money or something. Um, uh, but one of the results of this work that he did was he took me a couple of times to go on these visits. And I, quite honestly, was like pretty nervous as we'd go through, you know, the official things. You'd hear the door slam behind you. would be like, okay, here we are. We're in here now. Um, 
and sitting and talking with these people. But I, by the end, I was always just overwhelmed with this sense of, of love. And like there was this desperate relational need that we were helping to uh, be, be a part of. Um, sometimes prisoners would call the house um, and I would instantly get nervous if I answered the phone because it's back in the day when they had to call, I don't know if, how they call the house now, the prisoners, but um, back in, in, uh, in, in this time, like, the, the, they would say, like, you have a call from such and such correctional institute. And I, and I would instantly get nervous, like, oh gosh, the prisoners. Sometimes like my dad wouldn't be there, so I would deny the collect call from the prisoners. And I always imagined they were like, oh, I know, that's Clardy's son. I'm going to find him when I get out. I'm going to make him pay for this. He didn't. He denied the call, and I was like, ah, oh gosh. Um, but other times my dad would take the call, and I would just, I would hear him sort of listening to these, these men's stories. Um, every now and then he would get like a letter, and it would be, you know, folded over three times, like six or seven pages of loose leaf paper, and like this, like these men's hearts just poured out on these, on these pages. And, um, you know, what he would let me in on that um, was, was very meaningful to me. There was kind of an urgency that came through those calls and those letters. Um, it was like there were things that they wanted or needed to do. There was meaningful work that needed to, to happen in their lives, but they couldn't do it in person because they, were, um, they, they just couldn't physically be there. And so uh, some of these prisoners were in the middle of, of deep life changes. They're try, they, they've, they've changed and they're trying to let the people on the outside who are, who are connected to them know they've changed. They're trying to apologize or make amends. Uh, some of them were trying to do deep transformative work, but having to do it through letters. And one of the things that it created was an urgency that kind of poured through their words. And I, I draw on that experience, I think back to that experience from time to time, um, when, when I, I, I'm trying to help myself understand what's going on in a letter like we've been studying here in, in Colossians. Uh, obviously, some of the, some of the v- details are, are very different, but the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to this city church, this emerging, fledgling city church in this city, Colossae, um, that, that's growing up in the Roman Empire, the, the mind-blowing reality of this fledgling community of followers of Jesus that sort of expanded across the Roman Empire in about 300 years. And so you had these fledgling communities of followers of Jesus gathering in these cities, and Paul's not able to be there in person, but he's pouring out his heart to this group of people like it's life and death, like there's such intense stakes. I mean, some of the words we just read, like the stakes coming through the language that he's using is, 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 is very evident. He has this audacious goal of being able to make meaningful changes in the lives of this people who are going to receive this letter, even though he can't be with them in person. And he seems to know, even that there's um, only so far even the words themselves can go. And so a huge part of what goes behind this letter is Paul's praying for them. Sometimes a big chunk of Paul's letters to these churches were, let me just tell you what I've been praying for you. And so he's like trying to work a revolution in a city that he can't go to. And half of the work that he's doing is getting on his knees on a daily basis and pleading with God to do the work that only God can do. And then he's giving some descriptions to that, hopefully that the power of God can run along sort of the like channels of these words and work this type of change in these people's lives. So just 
to keep that in mind, what we're dealing with here is, is an apostle writing from this dingy jail. We've talked about this a bunch. Uh, just so you know, we're not recounting the full context of the letter and its background every single week because we just quite frankly don't have time. We don't have time to go through the full depth of Colossians in eight weeks, which is what we're trying to do, which is why we have you guys stu- studying it together in, in life groups and there's a bunch of resources. We're having to pick and choose our spots and what we can emphasize, but... Um, just so you know where we're at, there was a man called Epaphras who's mentioned in the first chapter of the letter who's come to Paul who basically had brought the message of Jesus to this community in Colossae and he's sharing with Paul that this community's growing up, that they really have received the message of Christ, their lives have been transformed, many of them have been filled with the Holy Spirit and their, their community's growing up but he also shares with Paul that there's a bunch of risks that are coming at the community. There's, there's uh, um, a, a Jewish community that's basically saying, yes, it's nice that you've trusted Christ, but here's how Jewish you have to become for it really to count. There was a Roman community that was basically putting social pressure on them. This is our economy. This is our imperial cult. This is the Pax Romana. This is the, and there was social pressure on them to fall in line. There was a, an emerging heresy that the, uh, lots of the New Testament letters are dealing with called Gnosticism, which was basically like that there's a special knowledge that you have to ascend to, and when you get there, you're in sort of this like higher state, and you can leave all the messiness of physical life behind. Uh, and Paul is basically trying to push against that and pull together our lives in a holistic way. But Paul's writing like it's life and death. And, and, and essentially he's saying, listen, there's some things, if you guys are really going to live as followers of Jesus, this community is going to make it. There's some things you have to know or your faith is going to be shipwrecked. And if you want to put it in two big columns, he's like, you have to know who you are and you have to know how to live. <laughs> If you want to think about that in terms of identity and behavior, you have to know who you really are. You have to have a sense of it. You have to know that God has a sense of it. And then you have to know what type of life flows out of that true identity. This is something that makes up the heart of several of the Apostle Paul's letters. You get this really clearly in the third chapter to the Colossians. A way to talk about it, a way that I I think about it is if you have your declared identity, this is like um, you've received forgiveness from God. You're made in God's image. You're delighted in. You're absolutely not an accident. Whatever things have happened to you, wounds that have, have been inflicted on your life, uh, d- damage that, that, that you've taken as you've moved through the world, mistakes you've made, failures you've made, like patterns of thought and behavior that have swamped you. The gospel comes in and says what Jesus has done in his life and death and resurrection counts for you. You're utterly and completely free, forgiven, loved, delighted in, somehow mysteriously all that God would pour out on his firstborn son, Christ, he's pouring out on us as his beloved sons and daughters in the gospel. That's the declared identity of being in union with God. And then there's realized character, which is like a type of life that comes out in, in, who, in who you are a, a, as a person. So a couple of ways just to think about it with those two headings up there. Over here, it's like adoption. In one moment, you receive a new legal status that you belong to this family. The realized character is over the years, you start to feel at home. You start to, to open the fridge like you belong there. You start to give out the resources of the house because it's your house as well. Over here is a theological word called sanctification. We don't use it very much. Or, or Sorry, I messed that up. Let's go back. Scratch that last part. 
distracted from the record. Over here is, I, I actually want it to be flipped, the, uh, the sides, but it's, it's fine. I'm gonna, I'm gonna press on because I'm a pro here. Don't worry about me. But the declared identity is a theological term, justification. In one moment, you're fully given all that you would need in the gospel through your union with Christ. But then there's a process called sanctification by which your character changes to grow, uh, to grow more and more uh, li- li- like Christ. There's, um, there's forgiveness that is yours, not because you earn it at all, not because you do any religious activity or you really are impressive or pleasing to God. You're given forgiveness by grace, but then as you forgive, as you receive that forgiveness, you become formed and forgiveness becomes a virtue in your life. The fruit of the Spirit becomes a reality of your realized character. The way it's put in this particular section of the letter is that you are holy and dearly loved in union with Christ. And then clothe yourselves in this new type of life until it becomes your realized character. Now, there's something that connects in this passage and over and over again in the New Testament that connects declared identity and realized character. And what connects them is practices. There, is a, there are patterns of activity and behavior by which you can change. I'm so inspired by the marathon every year. Last, last week after we finished, I ran out there and I, I was able to, to see my neighbor who was running by, Kurzawa Power, uh, who was blasting by on 4th Avenue. We gave him a hug. Um, basically, like he missed his, his, his ultimate time goal by two minutes because he gave so many of us a hug on 4th Avenue. Um, but such an inspiring moment that you can go from like, I can't, like, I could like, The average person can't just go out and no matter how hard they try, run 26 miles, right? You like have a health emergency if you try to do that. But if you train incrementally over 16 weeks, something that wasn't possible for you becomes possible for you through what? Through practices, through a a certain regimen of activity and rest and then increased activity and rest and, and nutrition and like something becomes possible for you that wasn't possible before. So your declared identity becomes your realized character as you participate in these regular practices. This is what Paul's talking about. Put off the old life and put on this new life that accords with being in union with Christ. One of my favorite examples of this is, um, you guys remember the miracle on the Hudson when Captain Sully, uh, the birds took the engine out of this plane that was taken off from LaGuardia. It was an emergency and he had to land on the Hudson River. Do you guys remember this story? They made a movie about it. I was in a meeting like just right on, I was at 9th Avenue and 42nd in a meeting and we got this news alert, like people weren't supposed to be looking at their phones, but they were. And we got this news alert that like this plane had crashed in the river. And I immediately thought, oh my gosh, horrible. Like I wanted to run out of the meeting and get down there and see, is there anything we can do? Surely people are going, uh, surely people are gonna be drowning literally right in this moment. I was utterly panicked. Um, and, and then I was like, what am I gonna do if I get down there? There's emergency workers that are converging on the scene. Like the best thing we could do is pray. So in our meeting, we stopped and we started praying. We were like trying to be as bold as possible, even though it seemed unrealistic that it would, that it would be, that there would be no casualties. But in our, in our little meeting, we were like, God, please let there be no casualties. Somehow a plane crashes in the water, let no one die. It just seemed impossible. And yet we all know what happened. Nobody died. 
And why, why is that the case? You know, you sort of get into the background of this, and, and there's a places where this, this breaks down as, as if you overlay what the New Testament is talking about, but like Captain Sully had this declared identity. He was a pilot at some point, and he earned it. It wasn't a, a gift of grace, but his pilot wings were pinned on him, and he was declared to be a pilot. But at that very moment, if he had been put in that situation that he was years later going to, to face, he would not have been ready whatsoever. But something happened in Sully's life. He, he trained on these smaller planes. He moved his way up to the bigger planes. Actually, he was a glider trainer himself. So over and over again, he had walked younger pilots through the very scenario that he was going to find himself in one day and how to glide down and make a landing on water. All of the protocol in the book, uh, like the emergency manual, said he was supposed to return to the airport, and he didn't. He makes this emergency landing on the water, which actually ends up saving everyone's life. And so what you see in Sully is, is something close to virtue. It's what gets squeezed out of your life in the most intense moments. And it it is formed through a process of what you regularly do. It is formed through a process of your practices. So your declared identity becomes your realized character through a process of practices. And for Sully's case, lives were saved because for years he had been practicing doing this very thing in a neutral environment. Right? Some of you know exactly what this looks like. You have spent some time in silence in the morning with God. You've, 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 you've read his promises. You've been nourished by secret generosity over and over again. So when a moment comes into your life, and it's more than you possibly would know how to handle, but you've been training your character to be a certain way, and you can show up for yourself and for other people like Christ might in that situation because a formative process has been at work in you where your declared identity is becoming your realized character through practices. Paul is saying this is what you have to know. You have to learn how to live. And the simple terms he gives us in this section of the letter is I want you to put off the old life and put on the new. Almost like I need you to change clothes. (laughs) And eventually those outer clothes will, will become the real you in, in some way. Like you'll put on the clothes of forgiveness and put on the clothes of I'm well, I'm healed. You'll put on the clothes of I'm dearly loved. Somehow God says I'm holy, whatever in the world that means. And yet I can over time let that reality take root. So when Paul says put off the old self, what is he saying? He's saying put off a life that was entirely rooted in a different framework Basically, a life that's trying to meet the deep needs of itself without taking God into account. Put that, old, that uh, type of life in so many ways that feels normal and natural in our culture. It may seem like this is just how I was raised. This is, this is what is the expected norms of my society. But in, so, in, in, in some very practical ways, this old life actually breaks down our identity and our framework for relationships in significant ways. Put off the old life and put on the new, which is being formed with the love of God at the center, which basically is saying, I, I'm coming to believe that I can't meet the deepest needs of my life just out of my own resources, just out of my own willpower, just out of my own self, that I need help, that I need God to, to intervene in my life. That, that if I put God's love at the center of my life, it's going to come to change my, my own character and the nature and quality of my relationship. So, I want to illustrate this for you with something we've looked at before in, in our church. If, if you've been around with us for a while, you've seen me um, walk through this because this totally changed my, my life in a significant way. Um, but this is you. 
I'm sorry if, if you're like on the whole 30 and you were hoping to have a different shape, um, but this is you, uh, not to scale. Um, and so what are you made up of? What am I made up of? We obviously have a body and a soul. So we have the physical part of us that everybody can see, and then we have an immaterial part of us that makes us who we are, right? When my father eventually passed and I went to his funeral and I stood over his open casket, the one thing my mom and I stood, said as we stood there was like, he's not here. Like, whatever is here, it's not him. Like, uh, and so his soul was, was absent from his body in that moment in a significant way. So you are um, a, a physical being, and you are also somehow also, you have a soul. You have an immaterial part of you. And so what are, the, what are the constituent parts of these realities? So if you think about our body, we have our five senses, taste, touch. I don't know why touch is bigger. Uh, sight, smell, hearing is also larger, apparently. Uh, I'm amazing at PowerPoint. Don't worry about me. Um, but right, this is how, from, from infancy to now, you've been taking in information in, 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 in the world through your body, and then you've been processing it in your soul, that immaterial part of you. I'm not talking just about the gray matter of your brain. I'm talking about your conscious thought, and then your volition, your ability to make choices, your will. <clears throat> And then your emotional reaction. So if you want to think about the process at work, information comes in through your five senses. I think we have a slide that like gets really clear in its illustration of this. Oh, wow, look at that. Information coming in and some nice PowerPoint squiggles being processed in the body and the mind, will, and emotions, right? So information comes in. You have a scent that you recognize, right? Oh, I'm in the movie theater and I smell popcorn. Now I have a choice of my will. I know popcorn doesn't cost what it costs out in the real world. It's $24 in here. Outside it's $3. But I'm in this movie theater and I must purchase it. So I, I shell out the money and I have an emotional reaction. The buttery treat is in my lap now and I shall enjoy this movie much more than I would have. And this process, right, you slow it down into like a linear process, even though it happens in a cyclical way a million times a day from the, point, from the moment that you're born until uh, throughout your entire life. You can, this is a way to move through the world and function in the world that all of us have to learn. This process is, is, is at work and it, it begins to shape us. Right? Certain things that you see and you come to recognize as dangerous. Certain things that you see and you come to recognize as loving. And they begin to shape the patterns that you move through your day, move through your week, move through your year. And they begin to form preferences in you. And, and you can't see it, but if, if, the, um, if the keyboard wasn't there, you'd see it says preferences, personality, and habits. Like they begin to be formed in you as this process is at work throughout your entire life in, a, in, a, in millions of ways. The Bible calls this, and don't get offended by this, so the Bible calls this essentially the flesh or the old nature in, in, in this, this part of Colossians. And it's not, like, it's not like that process is bad. That's all that we have to work with. When the Bible speaks about the flesh in the New Testament, it's talking about here's an operating system that every human being works without taking God into account. It's, it's just the natural life that all of us participate in this. And then the scripture says something significant happens and changes when someone comes into union with Christ in the gospel. Like the way it's described is mysterious, and it, but it's something like 2 Corinthians 5 says, when anyone comes into union with Christ, they, they go beyond just having that, those as their only resources for living, that you actually come to a place where your spirit comes alive. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, is how the letter to the Corinthians says it. The, the Gospel of John says that when someone believes in the name of Christ, he gives the right for them to be born as children of God. 
What on earth does that mean? It's, and it specifically says people not born just of human resources, but born of the Spirit. In John 3, Jesus is talking late at night with this, this teacher, Nicodemus, and he's saying, listen, you have to be born in a new way. It's like a change so significant that it's like you become alive in a way that you weren't alive before. And it's like the Spirit of God unites with your spirit and you become alive. Many people describe a bunch of different phenomenons in their life associated with this experience. People weep, people um, feel love, they, they have goosebumps. Some people like have, you know, like life-altering change comes into people's life when they're brought into union with, with, with Christ and their spirit comes alive. So um, I think we have, ha- have a picture of this, but this, actually let's not go to that because um, I want you to, to hear it described Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is. So first of all, set your heart where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature or flesh, Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. So the letter Paul from prison is writing to this fledgling community saying, listen, you have a whole host of ways to live that you've perfected throughout your entire life. But when you come into union with Christ, a new way of operating comes into your life. The way of living, not just by the flesh, but by the spirit. And that contrast of the flesh and the spirit, I think we have, yeah, is is described many times in the New Testament. How do you live, not just by your own human resources, but by the resources that God has brought into your life? And And this passage is described as the old life and the new life, this old way of operating. So, the way, the, the way this was first laid out to me, because I basically, uh, I think, let's go to the next slide. That, yeah, so the spirit comes in, and this is where the illustration breaks down. Any chart can take you only so far, right? Because we're not like a Mercedes-Benz emblem, and it's not like this part of the pie chart is spirit, this part is body. Like, it's all, it should be overlapping circles. I don't know how to do that in PowerPoint. So we need the Jesus of PowerPoint to help us out here, but you, you just for, for the sake of conversation so you can see the constituent parts, the Holy Spirit makes us alive in a new way. The letter to the Colossians says you've been made alive. You've been buried with Christ and raised to a, to a new life in union with God. Now it says that there are ways that you can know the Spirit. Hold on just a second, sorry. Woo. Big reveal, not ready for that. Um, you can know that the Spirit of God works in certain ways in the world. How on earth do I know that I'm participating in practices that are associated with the Spirit versus just participating in my old way of life that I've, I've learned as, as a human being, as a citizen of the earth throughout the rest of my life? And, and it's basically like learn to live by the Spirit. Romans 8 is all about this. Put to death this old way of life and learn to live by the Spirit. There's a part in Galatians which says, don't gratify the flesh, but live by the Spirit. This, this tension is, is, is described over and over again. And there's a couple of ways that the, the, uh, the, script, the Scripture describes the Holy Spirit is things that this, the Holy Spirit is present in. Now, stick with me, okay? I'm gonna give them to you very quickly. Let's just put them all up there. There's the Word of God, yeah, oh, almost all of them. One more, word of God. Ah, oh, boom, all four of them, boom, there they are. So 
these are places, if you're looking for practices of the Holy Spirit in your life, here are, and this is not like listing out all of the minutia of what those practices might be, but here's categories. Categories where you're, where you're ingesting, meditating on, being nourished by the word of God. The word of God is the sword of the spirit. It is living and active. It contains the power of, of God's spirit at, at work within it. Another is worship. One of the reasons like we get together on Sundays is when we direct our, our affection and attention and devotion to God in, in, in praise, it says God inhabits the praises of his people. Many people, even if they're not like associated with church or Christianity or whatsoever, they're like, I don't know about your service. It was weird and long, but I did like it when we were singing because it felt like there was an energy in the place. And what is that? Like it says the spirit inhabits the praises of his people, that there's something beautiful that begins to take place when we take our attention off of ourselves, or even our moods and circumstances and direct it to something higher than us and we begin to give worship to, to, to and celebrate the character of God. The spirit moves when, when, we, when we worship. Also prayer. And this isn't just like, God, I really need help on this test, although that's a totally valid prayer. But like when it's specifically when we're, when we're pouring out our soul to God, and, and that was a bad example. God, here's your prayers about tests. Relax, okay? Um, when we have a talking and listening vent for our soul, it says the Spirit will participate in that conversation with us. I, I, actually, you can, I like to tie together prayer and the Word of God. Like, sometimes when you don't know what to articulate, you can take a psalm, and, and you're like, God, where are you? Why, why are you not showing up in the way that I need you to? And you're venting your soul and you're, you're literally praying the word of God. So I'm pouring out my, my, uh, the vent of my soul to God and I'm using a place that I know the Holy Spirit is at work. And another, another place that we know the Spirit is, is active is, uh, is in community where two or more are gathered in, in his name, God promises to be there. So when we talk about, like I'm trying to make this as practical as possible with my limited PowerPoint skills, but basically, put off a life that doesn't take, uh, hold on, one more time with the chart, yeah. Put off a life that doesn't take God into account and put on a life where the Holy Spirit has made the love of God the center of your life. And if you're looking at places to access that in a given day, you can go to the word of God, you can go to worship, you can go to prayer, and you can go to community. And any of those that you can combine, you get like extra power. Like you can pray together with other people and it is a powerful experience. You can worship God in community, it is a powerful experience. When we come together in church, hopefully all four of these are thriving, right? We're worshiping God, we're meditating and being nourished by the word of God. We're praying together. We're confessing our hearts. We're being nourished by the sacrament of this, of this meal of our, our union of covenant love. And we're participating. We're being reformed by the life of the spirit. We come together on Sundays for practices of counterformation. During your week, you move from your declared identity in Christ to your realized character by practicing the things of the spirit. Put off the old life Put on the new. Now, the worst version of Christianity gets presented to us as a pattern of behavior modification. Basically, just skip right to this stuff and start trying to do things so that God will be pleased with you. But the reality is that, that the gospel says that we receive everything that we need in, in the gospel, and then we, then we live out of that. We, we, we are declared... Sons and daughters of God, and then we live into it. All right, how are you guys doing? I feel like we're, we're, we're this is tough. This is like, 
significant work that we're doing here. I want you just to look for just a second at the heart of God and specifically in this passage, what is being asked of us to put off and what is being asked of us to put on. Never mind for a second whether we think we can do it. Just think about the heart of who would be saying this to us. God is asking us to take off sexual immorality and pure, and I know how loaded these things are. I'm not meaning to just fly through them, but think about this. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips, lying to one another, do, uh, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. All right, so that, that's the take off, put to death this stuff. Basically, Paul is saying these things, if they live in, in, if you allow them to live in your life or in your community, they will destroy you and they will destroy your community. Basically, like if you treat sex in such a way that you separate the body from the soul and you just try to, to deal with someone as if they're simply a body, you're tearing at the nature of their being <laughs> and you will do damage to your relationship with them. You will do damage to the covenant friendships and relationships in your community. And, and, and if you allow those sort of those ideas to, to operate within you, it will begin to separate you, your body from your soul. There'll be a, disint a disintegration of your being. If you allow anger and rage and, ma and malice and slander, right? So you have this anger that you, you nurture within you and then you allow the expression of that, it begins to break apart, disintegrate your community. Paul's saying, you have to kill these things or they will kill you. You have to put these things to death because they're not neutral. They're trying to put you to death. So put off this type of life. And what do you put on instead? Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another. Put, put on love in perfect unity. Now, this is an intense change in our approach to God. One of my favorite theologians, N.T. Wright, who I quote all the time, he said, imagine two towns, and they're just down the road from one another. One town lives by the first set of things and the other town lives by the second. Which one would you want to live, live by? Now, if you just listen to advertising alone, everyone's like, the other town's way more exciting. People are partying down there. But over time, their relationships and their very being is disintegrating. Whereas, if we could, can you imagine, like, the heart of God wants this to be in the heart of our community. Compassion, kindness. Humility, gentleness, patience. When we, when we mess up, we bear with one another. When we're annoyed by one another, we bear with one another. When we wrong one another, we forgive one another. We're putting on love. This is, the, this is the practices. Clothe yourselves in this until it becomes your realized character. I kind of grew up with a sense like everything that's really fun and exciting, God wants to keep away from me. His people are tremendously boring, and if I ever become one of them, I'm gonna do it at the very end of my life so I don't have to be in their boring thing. But God wants you to do the right thing, and he's gonna be very, and basically, he is very disappointed in me that I'm not, and he's very disappointed in everyone. Like, he has to love us because that's he's got, but he basically doesn't like anyone, and he's fundamentally disappointed. Whereas, this is saying, God is saying, I want you to take off the things that literally weigh down your soul, break apart your relationships, disintegrate you, literally smother what is good in the world. I want you to put those things off because I want your soul to thrive. I want your life to thrive. I want you to live as my holy and dearly loved children. Identity and character. Put off this old mentality. Put on this new mentality. That there is a life 
that flows out of God's character. And when you're in union with God, it becomes your character. And it says something really intense. Like earlier we had those two sides. It's basically like I'm holy and dearly loved and so I'm clothing myself with this new mentality. With the, with the put off the old stuff, it says the wrath of God is coming. When you hear that, like there's like a movie theater kind of like uh, Liam Neeson is coming fully armed. Like God is furious, he's angry, he's ready to blow everyone away because they haven't lived this way. That's not the way the scriptures de- depict the wrath of God. I wanna give you really quickly two, two examples of the way the scriptures describe the wrath of God. And the first way you find in Romans 1, which is essentially like, basically C.S. Lewis put it this way, where some people say, God, your will be done. And to other people, God says, okay, fine, your will be done. And that's an example of the wrath of God. Basically, God says, you insist over and over, and I got this, I'll be my own God, I'll do my own thing, I'll live my own way. And God says, okay, I, I will respect that, and you can have your, your life the way you choose it. And there's, there's inherent consequences and results of that, of that life that become your inheritance as a person. That's described as a wrath of God. Basically, God allows you to do your thing, and without you ask, and, and, does, and doesn't insist on intervening. That's one description of the wrath of God. Another is, and you see this over and over again in the scriptures, is that God says uh, something goes on for so long and is causing so much disintegration of individuals and, and community that God says, I will step in and intervene and I won't let this go on any, any further. So you, you see this in the example where there was like gr- gr- grave, horrific injustice and violence going on in certain Old Testament communities and God says, I'm going to stop this from going on. So one exp- expression of God's wrath is, is passive, another is active where he says, I am gonna stop this from going on. And actually, our world would break apart without that. It is an expression of justice to say, this can't go on. It is disintegrating and breaking apart too much life. So Paul says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, that's who you are. Clothe yourself in this new life. That's how you live. Self-denial is never an end in itself in the New Testament. It's not like God's like, stop doing all this bad stuff. I want good moral people. He's saying, stop doing all this stuff that's killing you because I want you to live life and have it to the absolute full. And you have to, we don't, work, we don't do change by just removing something. We do change by replacement, <laughs> I'm learning this in my own life and in a powerful way in this season where God's doing some deep excavating of things that have been in me for so long and, and, and I'm having to put new practices in place where those old things used to dominate. Where lust and greed and anger and, 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 and aggressive mean speech and unforgiveness, these, these behaviors, just think about them. They break down relationship at every level. No matter how good lust feels in the moment, it is utterly self It is to say, I need you to meet my needs and I will do whatever to you is necessary to to let my needs be met and I will not consider you. Greed is essentially to put my my needs, right, in the place that God is supposed to be. It literally connects greed to idolatry. It's putting the meaning of my needs and my own comfort and my own status in the place that God is meant to be in my life. These things disintegrate relationship at every level. So I want you to think about the loving heart of a God who's inviting you to live this way and then we're done. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
Bear with each other. Forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through, through, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God through the Father through him. If you get in community and you work yourself through this passage, what you're gonna see over and over again are a bunch of practices that can connect your declared identity to your realized character. That you can know who you are and you can know how you live and there's literally a step-by-step pathway. Not by what you try hard and try to go run 26 miles, which you can't do by willpower, but that you incrementally change to become something and things that were not possible for you become possible for you. Literally living this type of loving, compassionate, kind, fruit of the spirit type of life. Now, we cannot, like as a church, programmatically, we can't do this. (laughs) We can present opportunities like, One of the things we're trying to do in every season of our church's life is have a list of practices that are available to you. We call them a daily spiritual practice and a love and action practice. Basically an inhale and an exhale every season of our church's life. So during this, this, as we're studying Colossians, our inhale practice has been to meditate on the person of Jesus in the gospels each morning or each evening. And our Our exhale practice is to share the love of Christ in a tangible way with someone. So looking for opportunities to do that. As we're moving into Advent, our Advent daily spiritual practice is going to be silence and solitude because our our culture is about to ramp up into a frenzy. And so what will it mean for us as a community to draw away a little bit each day in silence and solitude? Our love and action practice is generosity just at the time when we could be meeting all of our own needs and there's a demand on our budget, we're gonna try to be radically generous as a community. Why? Because you come in to your realized character through practicing your your declared identity in God. How do you access the life of the Spirit? (laughs) Practices of being nourished by the word of God, learning to direct your affections to God in worship, learning to pray as a vent for your your soul. If you ask God to speak, he will speak. If you ask God to listen, God will listen. If you pour out your soul to God in prayer, the spirit is active in those places and in community where two or more are gathered, you're not meant to do any of this alone. There's so much more in these 17 verses than we can cover in one Sunday, really than we can cover in one sermon if that hasn't been evident yet. You're like, you're long, bro. But you can learn to inhale and exhale your true identity as sons and daughters of God. And this is a guide for how to do that, to put off the old self, oriented around self, and put on the new self, oriented around love, immersed in the love of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and expressed in this unity of our identity and our relationships. This is what I'm hoping for, what I need, what I'm longing for and praying for for us, that we're not just a sermon hearing club, but we're inhaling and exhaling the love of God and being formed by it, being changed by it. We're putting on compassion and humility and kindness that you can come into this community, you can see what real forgiveness, hard won, looks like. Let me pray. Heavenly Father,
I thank you that if we open this passage again tomorrow, there may be another emphasis that comes out of it as we study it. Um, that your word is somehow living and active. It's able to speak to us in the place that we are. And I just thank you so much for that. I, I pray that you would form us to have the, the, the virtues, the fruit of the spirit, the realized character that you promise us in your word. Whatever life and life to the full looks like, I pray that we could receive that. I pray that we could take up these practices of putting off the old self and putting on the new, putting to death the things that are killing us to take up real and abundant life. I wanna ask that you would be so specific in how you lead the church in these next few moments, that you would lead us by the power of your spirit, that you would take specifically what we've heard today and you would apply it to each person in the way they can understand. I ask you for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Churches, we're, we're gonna respond in the way that we do uh, every single week. I just mentioned that we're not just trying to be a sermon hearing club, but we're trying to inhale and exhale this love of God on a regular basis. And, and these moments of response are a huge part of that. There's a moment in just a second where we're gonna pour out our hearts in worship. We're gonna take these, these poems and, that have been set to music as a way to help give vent to our soul and praise to God, and we're gonna worship. Another thing we're gonna do is we're gonna be praying. There's, there's rugs up here if you wanna come and kneel for a moment and pray silently. There'll be people that are standing up here that would love to pray with you, um, that you're not alone, you don't have to do this alone. And then also we're gonna be nourished by this meal. The bread that represents the broken body, the cup that represents the shed blood of Jesus. So it's not like, I'm not doing well enough. Oh, receive that you are welcomed into the family no matter how you are doing because Christ is well enough. Receive that you are utterly and completely healed and forgiven and embraced because this isn't based on our, well, our, our behavior but on Christ's. Receive the nourishment of his life for ours. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So the three ways we respond is we worship, we pour out our hearts in prayer, and specifically if the Spirit is leading you in any sort of commitment, I invite you to listen and to follow that, that prompting. And then we're nourished by this meal. Heavenly Father, would you bless your church as she comes forward and receives this meal. Lead us, Spirit, as we respond in worship and prayer. In Christ's name, amen. Churches, you're ready. Come forward and receive the meal. Let's worship and let's pray.